Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just €3 Euros a month. For that, you'll get exclusive access to regular bonus episodes, including an initiation into the world of rare book collecting, the chance to expand your reading horizons with recommendations from our team of specialised and passionate booksellers, hand-picked classic interviews from our archive, and an insight into what makes your favourite writers tick as they answer searching questions from our cafe's Proust questionnaire. You can now sign up directly in Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or for users of other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to all three are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Today, I'm joined at the bookshop by author and filmmaker Xiaolu Guo to discuss A Lover's Discourse, her extraordinary novel that takes much inspiration and indeed its title from the writing of French literary theorist Roland Barthes. In Xiaolu's A Lover's Discourse, a young woman recently orphaned moves to England from China months before the Brexit referendum to study for a PhD in anthropology. Once there, she finds herself struggling to master a shifting language and understand a fracturing culture. Tasks complicated further when she embarks on a relationship with a man whose roots lie between Germany and Australia. A Lover's Discourse is an examination of love, of course, but also of how love intersects with language and culture, of the difference, if such a thing exists, between reality and its facsimile, and of whether the sense of being at home, once lost, can ever be found again. Xiaolu, welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Thank you. So I suppose where I'd like to begin is with the sense of England that we um, that we get in the book. So um, when you were writing this novel, you chose for your narrator to arrive um, in December 2015. So this was a very fractious time in um, in English, recent English history, recent British history. Um, why was it important for you that the story you wanted to tell with this novel take place just before, during and indeed after the Brexit referendum? Right. I wanted to write a book about Europe. Um, but then to write about Europe, I have to look up again my almost 20 years life in England. Mm-hmm. And then so... The last few years was very troubled um, in England because Brexit, um, the whole consequences, the whole, you know, yes, still to come, but still I think we've already seen such a turmoil time, you know, from top to down, mm-hmm. um, everywhere in Britain. And I, and I thought about how to write about Europe is to start again, arriving in the UK, mm-hmm. and to get the two characters to look for a new home, which is mm-hmm. beyond Britain, you know, towards Europe. And another thing is also, I'm kind of a funny writer who always tried to rewrite my previous books. Uh-huh. So, so I um, always... I think a lot of writers do that, to be honest. Yeah, I think it's just uh, somehow, you know, this persistent idea, because when I came to England, actually 18 years ago, from China, um, I wrote a concise Chinese English diction mm. for lovers. And that was the first novel I wrote in second language English. Before that... I published about 10 books in Chinese when I was in Beijing. So it was strange that little novel, you know, I wrote 18 years ago when I was much younger. 
as a new arrival in London, looking at Western culture, particularly you know the English culture. And I wanted at that time to pay homage to Roland Barthes' mm. Lover's Discourse, but I couldn't, and I didn't manage to write that book, you know, through Lover's yeah. Language. So that was a novel just kind of launched itself into the world, out of my control. And as I said, nearly two decades later, I had been living in uh, quite a bit in in Germany, North Germany, Berlin and Hamburg to make my films. Mm -hmm. And then came to Paris for two years, all sorts of residence. And then I went around quite a bit, you know, especially in Switzerland for for teaching in University of Bern and then Zurich. I thought I just uh, somehow my cultural identity is much more European, mm. you know. Even though now legally I'm British, but biologically I'm, I'm Chinese. Mm-hmm. But I feel I'm totally European, you know, f- for the last two twenty years in the West. So then I thought, okay, I will restart to look at this this journey, the new journey, but through another arrival. Mm-hmm. So which is this woman character who is a PhD film anthropologist. And she arrived again as as if she's this kind of sociologist studying the West through her own kind of experience, mm-hmm. you know, encounters and, and also in the encounters, her emotional um, change, you know, about the world and the love. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Roland Barthes since, you, um, since you've mentioned the book. Um, so you said sort of one of your earlier books, you wanted it to be based around that. And finally, this book, as I said, it... it takes the title and a lot of its uh, inspiration, certainly thematic inspiration, from uh, Roland Barthes, A Lover's Discourse. And I know you've said in the past that this is a book which uh, you would have loved to have written, in fact. If there was any book you could have written, you would have written A Lover's Discourse by Roland Barthes. What is it about this book that, uh, that speaks to you? It's strange because I had to go back to my university years in Beijing because mm-hmm. I actually studied film theory. Huh. And the, stu- the study I had for years, you know, seven years in the film school in Beijing was really a strange course, really a combination of, you know, study of social, you know, social language mm-hmm. and a part. And uh, I remember a lot of poetry from um, uh, Pasolini, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, not only his essays on film, but more, mo- mostly his poetry. You know, as filmmaker Pasolini, <laughs> and uh, of course, you no know, Godard always. And um, I think I was drawn to those kind of essayistic writing without narrative, but much more like a art critical mm-hmm. kind of prose. Mm. And I, all my life, I tried to avoid narrative writing. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, um, you know, it, it, I guess you know, as a young author, then I was looking around, kind of find a path which might belong to to me. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, between Duras and Bart, I thought about finding a way, you know, in my language, in Chinese, mm-hmm. um, to, and later on now in English, you know, find a way to, to, to have certain kind of uh, almost, I would say, you know, more bodily, more feminine, sensual experience mm-hmm. about language and a foreignness, mm-hmm. you know, both those two writers. And with Bart, it's more... Somehow this myth, he managed to penetrate about, you know, the, the language as narrative. You mm. know, we were born with language. Also, you know, Derrida the same. You know, we, 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 we are not born without language, mm-hmm. which means we are conditioned by language. Mm-hmm. It, it before us, you know, precedes us. Before the baby was born, 
it was designed there. You, know, uh-huh. you just need to pick up or inherit it. So it's almost like we're living in this kind of jacket, in this kind of jail, no, linguistic jail, mm-hmm. you know, whether you're bilingual or monolingual, you know, it's there. Mm-hmm. And you enter into this kind of matrix and try to define you know, which identity, which language you might belong. Mm-hmm. So especially with Barton, also, you know, not only Love's Discourse, but the, the other little book I really love, Empire of Sounds, mm-hmm. about yeah. his experience in Japan. He's lost in this kind of foreign foreign sound and the sounds. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was incredible, you know, it's from the other angle, you know, um, because so rare from Western angle, look at, looking at the Eastern mm-hmm. uh, culture, you know, it, it's always us, you know, I'm one of the us, you know, to come to the West to say, you know, this is a difference. This is how our ling- linguistic identities mm-hmm. are, dif- you know, different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, of course, the, the interesting corollary that Bart was lost in Japan amongst the, sort of the, the Japanese language and the, and the Japanese sort of symbolic alphabet. And your character in A Lover's Discourse, um, I don't know, we couldn't exactly say that she's lost because she, she has a certain quite high capacity for English she's she's able to express herself she's able to um, to communicate with people she's able to conduct a relationship with somebody in English and yet throughout the book there's this sense that she struggles with feeling at home in the language yeah I want because this novel is composed by many small very small sections Mm -hmm. Again, very fragmented. But the, one of the sections called the monolingual. And uh, I remember I was reading Derrida. You know, there's one little section from Derrida said that we're all, we're all monolingual, whether you speak two or three right. languages. Yeah. And I interpret it as we're monolingual in a sense we live in this inherited, very tight cultural kind of package, you know, the structure mm. bound by our parents, our our culture, you know, stamped by the past. Yeah. And in that sense, we're monolingual, you know, and I, funny, I felt that all the time, you know, whether I speak English or Chinese or mm-hmm. French or learning German, I somehow don't function in a multiple way, you mm. know, even though I, I thought I was, you know, writing now last 17 years in English rather mm. than Chinese. But it's something, it's about, again, it's the reader's thought, you know, the language is spoke uh, for us, you know, before us. And uh, the language speak instead of we speak. Mm-hmm. So I think there's another another quote I, I read um, somewhere from Heidegger. You know, I think one of the very famous speech Heidegger made, we thought we live, we control the language, we are the master of language, yet... It's opposite language control us, mm. and in that sense, we're monolingual you know, in the in the more metaphysical way. Mm-hmm. It's it's fascinating because um, as somebody who has learned um, a second language and become quite um, fluent in that second language, but quite late in life, like I only started really learning French when I moved here seventeen years ago when I was twenty four. Um, I've always felt that in some way, learning French has expanded my vision of the world in some way expanded my yeah my my world in itself and yet i really identify with that sense of being monolingual in that there's only one language i think however long i spend in france that i will feel entirely at home and i think that would be uh english and that's both with its kind of its freedoms 
and also as you talk about these kind of restrictions uh, it has it yeah, has imposed on I agree so uh, yes in 30 years I've been living in China I am Chinese and I wrote Chinese books but I felt and I'm feeling still much more free um, from political censorship and self-censorship by writing in English, which is my second language. And it's, you know, this is my English writing life mm. is much younger, much younger mm. than my Chinese writing life. So it's strange, you know, with English, I have this very interesting, you know, and a, you know, I, you can imagine, you know, because it, it, it was imperial language, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's, it's a language, you know, with this colonial connotation everywhere, you know, in the vocabulary, in the phrases. But on the other hand, it's totally elastic. It's totally embracing and inclusive, mm-hmm. which I couldn't do really with French. Maybe I could, mm-hmm. or in German would be not uh-huh. possible, you know. And I think with English, I find... Um, I was encouraged and I'm still encouraged to using my, my accent uh-huh. in my writing, bringing my own hybrid language mm. from Eastern language. And I can also sabotage it. Mm-hmm. I think that's something rather democratic, you know. It's, it's one of the good outcomes after the, yeah. the, the, the post-colonial debate. You know, we can sabotage and play with mm. it, you know. And I think as, as a second language writer, I felt really... It's incredible, you know, the freedom I, I felt using my second language mm-hmm. to write, which I don't have when I write in Chinese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder, um, I imagine Sigmund Freud would have a lot to say about the sort of maybe, you know, even if you learn another language and you work in another language, your sort of your super ego, perhaps, is always going to be, in your case, Chinese, in my case, English. And maybe when you shift into the other language, that sense of judgment from you know, figures of authority, let's say parents, for example, in some way can be can be put aside. That's right. Um, in Lover's Discourse, this novel, I try to bring in other languages, especially German. Mm-hmm. And um, because the male character has this German, half German, and I talk about, you know, the the gender difference, mm. you know, the moon, mont, yes. you know, or folk, um chair, table, you know, this very nuanced gender mm. difference. And of course, in Chinese, noun. Mm-hmm. In English, a bit simpler. Yeah. Um, and I kind of use those things or, you know, play around with grammar in, in, in European languages. And I thought for, for a novelist, that's kind of useful way to play around the, the mm. idea of identity and the belonging, you know, mm. through, through words, you know, yeah. itself. Yeah, indeed. I mean, of course, in 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 France, you can in French, you can essentially disguise the the sex of the person you're talking about by referring to, for example, la personne, and then afterwards you will always re- use the LLL. But you may be talking about a woman, but you may equally be talking about a man, and that's something which is much more difficult to do in in English. And it's really fascinating to see what certain languages permit and certain languages sort of deny the the speaker. That's right. I know it's interesting because you earlier on you mentioned Freud. Um, I now I just arrived by Eurostar, um, you know, an hour ago, and I entered the Chinese restaurant before I came here, mm-hmm. and uh, suddenly the Chinese speech in in this French restaurant, you know, the, the waitress speaking to me in Chinese in Mandarin, and I, finally I felt this stream language <laughs> coming to me um, because I write in English and. Uh, 
and I studied you know third language in the German. So I, it, it, suddenly my native language became a certain kind of dreamy language, <laughs> and uh, I was suddenly lost. You know where I am, you know space and time, and suddenly I click. Okay, I'm in France. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking my mother tongue actually, which is Mandarin. Um, and Freud actually said something about Chinese language. Um, is perfect serving for studying dream language because he said long ago um, the the Chinese ideograms com- mm-hmm. complicated uh, radicals you know pa- parts you know co- constitute compose yeah. one Chinese character with this exact meaning in one character is this amazing um, suggestion to to analyze subconscious mm. consciousness and uh, and I think later on I think you all know. Or, or some other psychoanalysts suggest, you know, we should look at the Chinese language or the return language to study mm. the, the the consciousness. Mm. <laughs> and I thought it's very funny, you know, this suddenly an hour ago, I have this kind of entering into this <laughs> dream language, you know, try to find my verbal expression. Mm-hmm. And of course, this becomes crucial. I mean, we've mainly been talking about the way that through language we uh, mediate what society as as a whole sort of throws it at, at us but of course in this book it's not just your narrator's uh interaction with society it's also specifically her interaction with uh this man that she that she meets and falls in love with and to add further complication he is not a person of one language either he's somebody of both australian and german heritage so he has a consciousness shaped by these two these two languages and these two and these two cultures um could you talk a little bit about the the sort of the added complication that comes when in a relationship with uh somebody not necessarily a romantic relationship but any relationship between two people with multiple languages involved yeah it's a very complex question and i i try to answer i think multiple languages links to the idea of multiple personalities and mm. then for me come down to the multiple landscapes where you grow up and where you find home with a certain la- a certain landscape but not other mm. so in my case i had to design this male character as a landscape architect mm. and i always i think always fascinated by landscape and how we suck in the, the, the a certain quality of landscape say that's my home that's mm. the land i know in my case, I I belong to semi-tropical or tropical land where I grew up, and I recognize you know big leaves, big flowers, slightly mm. poisonous in the in the rain. I don't recognize very well the the little needle-like pine trees, mm. different type of pine in in the northern snow landscape. You know, I don't know about that landscape, and I don't dress well to cope with that landscape. Mm. So. And that again, you know, come down to, of course, language, landscape it seems to be really these two things in your body and the extension of your body, you know, your absolute connection to the world or mm. most fundamental connection to the world. So, so this character, the man, has to be landscape architect and they discuss where they should live, which landscape they feel home. Mm. So they were up and down in a book, they, they go to Australia. And they go to Germany. They try to look for places. Um, I remember when I traveled to Australia in one once. I was really down near South Pole in mm-hmm. Tasmania, and I remember this very incredible, bleak, lonely feeling in beautiful 
pure Tasmanian forest. Mm. I remember that, you know, looking at Wellington Mountain in the distance. And um, and just uh, feels um, this absolute um, no existence, you know, in Chinese words, wu, you know, mm. no self, no existence, no identity. Um, and language and identity mean nothing when I mean absolutely remote land when culture is not the first thing. Well, let's say the culture, culture, the urban culture is mm-hmm. not the first thing in their life. No, you know, your identity, you know, those things become actually very superficial and come down to very simple things, get water to drink, you know, mm-hmm. can cook something, you know, to, to eat, don't get sick, you know, and no one to see. And that, it made me think about how to write about character. Mm. So strangely enough, all my novels, they call them the love story, but I never really wanted to write novels <sighs> because I want to write monologue. Mm-hmm. I want to write prose monologue, but I cannot really sell the monologues <laughs> <laughs> repeatedly. So it's just my several novels, I had to invent a, a, a auto ego, you know, a mm-hmm. counter character. And since I'm so comfortable with the, the, the self character as women, you know, I had to invent this male, male self. Mm-hmm. And the, so that's why I think all my novels is male self and a female self talking. And um, they become lovers or, mm-hmm. you know, and that seems to be the most natural way or a couple speaking to each other. And this novel fits in <laughs> the idea of, you know, the discussion of self and the landscape, mm-hmm. language, you know, identity, in the end, all identities. And really what what I try to, to write about is really... Um, you know, in, through this novel, I, I want to discuss a certain issue about how to live authentically. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they keep looking for the ideal home. And to live authentically, we look at what is authenticity. Mm-hmm. And that's why the, the woman character, the, she's from anthropology, she says, I go to this Chinese village. Mm-hmm. Every peasant uh, artisan, they produce, reproduce Western Renaissance art in one day, you know, mm-hmm. tell me, Mona Lisa, or or whichever Dafenshi work or Caravaggio work, I do it in seven hours, exactly looking the same with my hand and my mm-hmm. brush. And so this is the further discussion, what is our sensitivity of mm-hmm. life yeah. and art? Well, let's, let's, let's unpack that, um, that, that village you've just mentioned, because um, perhaps our listeners won't be aware of this as a kind of, as a, as a sort of a, a cultural product. But just to confirm, this is actually uh, a real place in China, right? This is a village which is essentially the almost the entire population have uh, transformed themselves into copyists of uh, classical European art. So uh, from Renaissance art uh, onwards, essentially, they they reproduce these paintings in quite uh, sort of rapid time, rapid time, impressive detail. Uh, for very low prices. Exactly. There's many villages in China like this. And one of the villages I went, which I made documentary films called uh, Five Men and Caravaggio. Mm-hmm. Because I, when I was there, I asked one of the artisans to copy one of Caravaggio's famous work called Sinjong in the Wilderness mm-hmm. or Sinjong in the Forest. So yeah, it's yeah. kind of half-naked man John in the portrait with red rope and in this very dark forest and with with lamb on mm. on the side of one, one of his legs and uh, it's very complicated uh, painting you know to copy because the the contrast between light and shadow mm-hmm. very subtle 
but in so I made a film there. So that's why I know this place and I'm just absolutely loving that place. I always want to return. But in this novel, of course, I use other examples. Mm-hmm. Um, in the novel, I, I used one of the artisans I saw. Uh, he was copying um, um, versions on the rock by mm-hmm. Da Funchi, which is another incredible, complicated painting, the details, you know. So in the novel, I, I portrayed, the artisan basically said, well, I don't know which baby, because in that painting, mm-hmm. Um, Virgins on the Rock, there's two babies, you know, and one one of the babies is Jesus. Uh-huh. And for him, he, he had no idea, uh-huh. you know. But also, when we are not come from religious, you know, Christianity, you kind of really, you know, you are in a dream state, you mm-hmm. know, okay, just these four figures, you know, one is this color, one is robe, two the babies, and then some rocks. And then, so for example, he, the artisan didn't see hollow. Mm-hmm. Hello, on on you know the Saint Hello, you know on on the little painting, you know I think it was on the, on the Mary's mm-hmm. Mary's head, but because we are looking at a little tiny iPhone picture, mm-hmm. and uh, he will look at the the actual size and he will measure a real canvas uh-huh. with a measure ruler to make the exactly same size, but the 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 copying process just from the tiny iPhone images, uh-huh. which is about you know two centimeter, <laughs> it, it it brings up so many considerations both for me both practical and also philosophical like just on the practical side of things first of all you know i i'm assuming <laughs> there's not sort of like these are this i'm assuming this doesn't take place in villages where people were you know art particularly sort of artisans or painters before like they they they're not that wasn't their original training or traditional activity this was just something which they they learned, they taught themselves to, Absolutely. to make money. It, it is actually a very long tradition, you know, with, with Chinese artisan culture, because I come from an artisan family. Mm-hmm. It's slightly different. You know, my, my, the village near us, actually, I know, you know, the whole village, they're making saxophones mm-hmm. and trumpets. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, often you see a grandpa, you know, very old grandpa, you know, smoking away, and then suddenly he blows trump, trumpet, you know, just to test, <laughs> test if, you know, sounds okay. Yeah. Yeah. But he never went, to, you know, no one ever went to music school, you know, and they making mm-hmm. those huge trumpet or, you know, especially saxophone is such a exotic thing for mm-hmm. Chinese culture, you know, the, it didn't belong to us until yeah, recently, yeah. right? But the, the grandma, grandpa was making this and the children were making parts, you know, to put into the, the saxophone. And so where I grew up, more like my my father was artisan for, uh, he was painting propaganda paintings, mm-hmm. you know, for years, years, with great details, you know, Red Army soldiers, you know, peasants driving, tr- you know, trucks in, in the rice fields, mm-hmm. you know, very, very fun details. And, uh, you know, every every hair, you know, Mao, you know, Chairman Mao, mm-hmm. or all the soldiers in front of him, you know, all this. And I remember large scale, you know, and you don't have authorship. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember my father was doing maybe, you know, so the, you know, some left side of the fields, you know, maybe with a few portraits of peasants. Mm-hmm. And then on the right corner will be two two young men, you know, doing doing detailed approach uh, of you know tractors, GCPs or or uh, harvesting, you know, those action on the right mm-hmm. side, you know, and then there'll be a ladder in the middle, someone climbing up, you know, doing the, the sky. Uh-huh. There was never a, a authorship, you know, and I think occasionally they have team number mm-hmm. in the back just to say who is responsible if if this painting, you know, drop off from the wall or, or <laughs> right, the paint's, you know, been ruined. You know, so there's a team number, remember, mm-hmm. they, they, they do have. So this is the culture 
I grew up, and then later on, my father become sort of more individual painter. Mm-hmm. In the sense, he I think he got very inspired by fresh uh, French uh, impressionistic painting, you know, mm-hmm. Van Gogh, Monet. And he said something very clear, said why the Western painting can just have pure landscape without mm. heroes, without mm. peasants or soldiers. Yeah. Why do we need to add peasant soldiers in the landscape? I think also my father come from ink, mm-hmm. traditional painting, you know, Chinese ink. Yeah. Uh, we barely do figures in Chinese landscape mm. we call shan shui hua, meaning mountain river portraits. Okay. Never had humans in it. Uh, barely. And uh, so he wasn't trained, you know, to do the body you know, anatomy, you know, ex- exactly like Western figures would be painted in religious painting. And so he felt very not confident mm-hmm. to do that. And I, I understand that. And later on, he got really trouble mm-hmm. um, during the Cultural Revolution mm-hmm. because he didn't want to paint more figures in, in the landscape painting. Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of tradition I come from, you know, slightly different from just intense handcraftsmanship, you know, mm. for example, this Dafon village, old artisans from young to old, actually they were, they were immigrants mm. and they, they said, well, you know, that area towards Shenzhen, Hong Kong, there's more money around. Mm. So let's move there. Yeah. And then the whole village is around 2,000 people when I was staying there, filming there. And I loved the experience there, you know, only for a few days filming, mm. but everybody spoke other dialect you know, from really remote part of China. Mm. You know, nothing to do with that area. And I couldn't understand. So we, we communicate with a bit of Mandarin, a bit of mm. local language, and uh, never went to our school. You know, some never heard of Caravaggio. Or, or, or you know, I, I remember I, I said, you know, you can do this very complicated Renaissance painting. You can copy that. And what do you think if you copy a very simple one like Picasso mm-hmm. or Kandinsky? And they said, who? And I said, well, it must, surely it would be so easy for you to copy Kandinsky. And they never heard of And then I showed one Kandinsky. They said, that would be just an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, exactly the same, even better. Uh-huh. And they said, we, we're going to paint even better mm-hmm. you know, than Kandinsky. And I, I thought it was very funny. And uh, I just, uh, you know, there's no possessive um, relationship mm-hmm. to the painting, you know. And, and uh, it's just this incredible attitude towards classical art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that something um, you said, for example, the, the sense of a lack of ownership to the paintings that your father worked on? Um, obviously, that was done in the context of a, of a communist state. But is that something that predates communism in, a sort of in, in, in Chinese culture, do you think? That idea of lack of ownership, or was that of, of artworks or things like that? Or was that something that was essentially imbued into uh, Chinese culture by, uh, by the communist, uh, after the communist revolution? I, I think it, it, it should not, or it can't be completely contributed to, to the communist culture, because mm. I do think it comes down to the difference of Eastern culture. Mm. The Chinese culture is not about self. It has not been mm. about self or individual value only until recently, say the last 30, 40 years, you know, after 1980s, when China completely opened up after mm-hmm. the complete closed off cultural revolution, you know. And but for, for thousands of years, it's this kind of, it's this culture about, you know, the Chinese words, tian ren he yi, tian the sky, the nature, up there, out there, ren is a human, humble human. So the, the, the nature, the sky out there, and the hum, humble humans, just one thing, there's no mm. division. So there's not a, 
a, a single person's this great value there to be created, to be experimented is you are nothing but belong to that the whole and holistic, holistic one kind of mother bond, you know, the the, mm. the boundary of of motherland. Um, maybe because also the the traditional Chinese culture is so much about agricultural landscape. And the Industrial Revolution didn't arrive much, much later. Mm. I would just say 200 years later, the delay. So this continuity of the, the landscape, you know, but the landscape used as a farmland, but quite organically, you know, between animals and humans and, and the farming crops, mm. you know, those um, structure continued for so long. Um, I think that I do not think, you know, the, 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 we had, you know, philosophically, suddenly have this enlightenment, like in mm. Western culture, or there's there's one Chinese version where Nietzsche has said, you know, God is dead. I, I don't think yeah, yeah. we have similar thing like that. So it's more like uh, the self is removed from this ontological mm. <laughs> discussion, you know, as as in the West, um, and only until recently. And of course, I think communist culture reinforced that nature. But mm. I, I still think it's kind of continuation of a traditional culture. Mm-hmm. And when, so for your narrator in a book, when she is uh, reflecting on this this uh, subject of kind of of original, of the, the authentic, um, could you talk a little bit about how that influences her perception of the relationships that she she enters into into the West? Because my, my sense, particularly the way that love is has come to be understood in in Europe and I think that's principally defined by the romantic movement is as something pure and authentic and in some way unimpeachable and in some way sort of uh, almost like a, a completely sort of inaccessible indivisible whole is there something to be said for for questioning that idea of love from the perspective of questioning authenticity? Possibly. Again, it's very, it's complex question. I can only speak of my own experience as immigrants, you know, not immigrants, say, between the European land, but much more kind of far away, you know, from China to the West, but without any kind of Western kind of cultural bringing up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, my experiences as immigrants in, in Europe, I, I think looking for home and looking for love is so strangely contested. Mm-hmm. And often, you know, there's a materialistic um, anxiety. You know, I often see an immigrant family would be the first family bought bought a house in the foreign land, you know, they, were, they would be possessing a property, you know, and that start from there, they felt security, and then they would expand from that little property. Mm-hmm. And yet you see the local Londoners or local Berliner, local Parisian, they don't have that desperation or need to possess a place to, to live, mm-hmm. you know, the property only is not that urgent. But I, I understand completely, you know, how an immigrant family the first or foremost they they need to do, you know, for, for structuring their foreign mm. life and settle down. And I the same I have that need and the desperation in my early years. The first ten years was really this combination of a material anxiety, insecurity and also the the you know, the cultural identity 
because I began to write in English then as a Chinese writer already published in Chinese. So I felt very just strange identity. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't say identity crisis, but something like that, a certain crisis in me. Um, but again, I think that the whole stress of living and surviving, not only just as immigrant, but also as artist, you know, mm-hmm. how to continue to survive with some dignity, not mm-hmm. just immigrant, you know. So that, I think, put stress onto the loved one, onto mm-hmm. the partner then, or now, you know, this kind of quest of, of have this security of life, you know, both, you know, intellectually and, and materially, I think it's quite a big stress for mm. for the person you share life with. Of course. Yeah. And um maybe you know sometimes that that forces the relationship to be very solid and complete mm. together. Um and the free floating kind of relationship maybe sort of luxurious mm. even though you know I dream every day you know we should be bohemians uh-huh. with, <laughs> we should consume without demanding anything back or invest onto you know a future or something you know but but then the reality as an immigrant is different. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's a reality which um, both for your character, but also probably for you as a as a writer and a UK based writer that was thrown into turmoil by the Brexit vote and the the discourse around the, the Brexit vote, because, of course, you know, ostensibly the Brexit vote was about the relationship between Britain and the European Union. And yet so much of the discourse was about, specifically about immigration and what it meant to be British and what it meant to be um, to be a sort of a legitimate presence in on so-called British territory. Um, did you find that as a as a writer, as an artist, as a as a filmmaker, that that sort of turbulence did you find it sort of inspiring? Did it sort of unearth uh, new sort of creative possibilities for you? Or was it more sort of just sort of on a personal level sort of troubling as a as an immigrant who sort of made their home in this country, which was suddenly in well, all this turmoil? it's strange, you know, that when you live in a foreign country, you know, everything is okay until that country suddenly changes its own political st- structure or destination you know mm-hmm. and suddenly you are no longer foreigner because you are mm-hmm. legally in you are legally bound in that the whole structuring of this of the social network you know so suddenly i think the brexit um the whole thing involved me becoming a british citizen and i suddenly began to read all the british history <laughs> you know like before you know i didn't care you know to to understand the tudor time or, or what happened you know after the 1066 you know the uh-huh. battle of hastings and now i'm very keen to understand <laughs> after the william the conqueror you know what happened to to britain and england you know uh, a thousand years ago you know the the, the supposed foreign invasion the french invasion in england and now what happened you know the the whole removal you know from mm. the continent the european continent and really interesting enough i really began to read historical novels mm. um and uh, just research into a much deeper past about england and its relationship to europe mm-hmm. especially to france because this entangled you know, a hundred years war and then French anglophone, you know, and there's a whole Nordic coming down, you know, thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, currently, I work on the novel to do 
towards that period. And I thought uh-huh. without Brexit, would I look much deeper and further, you know, into that past? You know, I would have probably just live as this kind of free floating foreigner mm-hmm. again, you know, in, in England. And I, it made me a bit more responsible in a sense to do mm-hmm. with, you know, history, local history. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, of course, you mentioned the Battle of Hastings in 1066, because on the subject of language, that was one of the the moments when the English language expanded with the incorporation of French and uh, I, I guess set off on this path of being a sort of an expansive, uh, inclusive, um, sort of welcoming language in a, uh, in a way that a lot of languages like French, for example, uh, have not been over over the centuries. And so it's, it's interesting, like you talked earlier about the, um, the way that uh, so in the post-colonial times, uh, England, English has imported words from the, the colonies and then former colonies. But in fact, it's a history which I guess dates back right, right to this uh, Norman invasion. And I guess before when the when the Angles and the Saxons became the Anglo-Saxons, like it sort of it seems to be something sort of written into the the construction of the, the English psyche, this kind of melding, this merging. And yet, unfortunately, it seems to be something which the current sort of uh, British political scene reject almost. Yes, absolutely. And I feel like if I finish that historical novel, if I, you know, then I would understand quite a bit about <laughs> Anglo-Saxon, <laughs> and especially, you know, after the Norman conquest the last thousand years, you know, if I have some decent knowledge on, on that period, then I am a European. So just, just before we finish, I did want to come back to this idea which you have evoked uh, several times during this conversation, um, both of the sense of home and the uh, and the sense of um, loneliness, and I think, in a sense, the the two of them go together um, as a consideration, particularly for for the narrator of um, a lover's discourse. Um, she is a person who, I think, like a lot of great heroes and heroines of literature, is on a quest for home. But as we as the novel progresses we have differing levels of faith about, not necessarily about her capacity to find it, but whether it can ever be found at all and whether one has to just get used to the idea that uh, certain people, for whatever reason, will always be sort of psychologically um, homeless. I recognise that's not a question. No, it's very valid. It's a it's great um, observation, you know, through, through my novels. It's very strange um, that all my characters, or you know, the, let's say the central central character, always somehow often like, or you know, pretending she's often or oh, have this existential loneliness which permeates this person's life, you know, throughout the prose, you know, even when she possessed love or without home or with home. Um, I think psychologically it's very interesting when this, you know, experience from the political reality I experienced in China, you know, my generation, my generation before, before my generation and even the generation after mine, we were all growing up completely alone or just with aged grandparents mm-hmm. because all our parents were, were working hard, hard labor in the factory. Um, in my case, I haven't met my parents until I was eight. Mm. Uh, my mother was full-time factory worker in a silk factory, mm. and I, you know, I remember, you know, later on when I visited my mother's 
silk factory, I, I remember hundreds and hundreds of just female workers mm-hmm. standing there all day, all day till late night. Um, I think the only lunch break they had, they had, they had to run outside. There's kind of huge, this kind of bucket of soup-ish soup mm-hmm. um, um, in, the, in the very massive buckets. And I remember everyone has to rush within certain time limit. Um, and um, I never saw them. And my father was in another place work mm-hmm. uh, full time. And I, of course, we grew up with grandparents who were almost all of them illiterate. Mm-hmm. And I remember... All my neighbors, the kids, they were like that until much later they returned to their parents because schooling demand or grandparents died. Mm. And in my case, my grandparents died. And then I returned home with my mm. parents, you know. And I know, you know, the generation before, you know, we, we never had this kind of direct parental love, you know, at home. You know, home us, for us, is a strange place. You know, mm. you return home, there would be nobody there. You make your food and you're only seven or eight years old, you know. And when I remember when my mother, parents arrived, it would be very late. And I would be like, you know, ready, you know, with food, rice for them. And they would be so tired. And next morning, they they had to leave much earlier than I go to school, you know, for example. So it's got kind of very, you know, kind of maybe there was love, you know, but still it's, it's very the poverty of love, you know, loveless mm-hmm. childhood. And that is quite fundamental you know even you don't need to believe in Freud or that it's extremely hard for for a young kid to to form vision of life or mm. form some idea about love and uh, and that's a Chinese I would say you know sort of Chinese style industrial revolution you know after Mao took over China you know mm. and I think from 50s 60s and uh, 70s 80s is the same you know we grew up such a hardship and and also just this poverty <laughs> kind of a loveless home environment you know and i so that that's just a long 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 answering of your short question but the other thing is more literary psychological my heritage from reading literature you know the great literature somehow you know <laughs> the central characters all kind of often you know like we dream where we could be Peter Pan, you know, mm. or or somehow, you know, if we live in a hard life, you know, Olive Twist would be the, the 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 the, the kind of you know the, the representation of our life. Somehow, we're longing for finding kind of second home, mm. or or if something you know could be blessed into our later life, we we return to child again, where often we reborn again mm. in in our new in my case in my writing. Mm. Well. That is all we've got time for. A Lover's Discourse is available, of course, from Shakespeare and Company, from our online store or from your local neighbourhood independent bookstore, wherever that may be. Uh, all that's left for me to say is Xiao Lugo, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by recommending us to your friends. And don't forget... If you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Spotify, Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care, stay safe and thanks again for listening.